So a big part of wisdom is learning to distrust yourself, which sounds counterintuitive in our culture, but that's what wisdom is. Wisdom involves becoming naturally suspicious of your own first thoughts and native desires. Wisdom involves saying to yourself, all right, self, I've heard what you think and what you want, but now I want to consult with the word of the Lord. If you learn to do that, then the reward you can expect to receive is straighter paths in life and refreshment. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. We don't often hear anyone in our culture telling us not to trust ourselves, but that is exactly what we are being told here in Proverbs chapter 3. Wisdom involves being suspicious of our first thoughts and native desires. It involves subordinating those things to the timeless authority of God's Word. That doesn't come natural to our fallen human hearts, but it does point us toward and set us on the path that leads to faithful and fruitful life. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 3. As we've talked about a few times now, after the brief preamble in Proverbs 1, 1 to 7, we have 12 introductory poems about wisdom, which run from 1, 8 through to the end of chapter 9. Here in chapter 3, we have the fourth and fifth of those poems. The first one runs from verse 1 through to verse 12, and then the second one runs from verse 13 through to verse 35. Some commentators see these two poems as essentially ramping up and doubling down on what the Father said to the Son in chapter 2. So in chapter 2, the emphasis was on the relationship between conditions and consequence, and we see that nexus developed even further here. Know the Lord, and you will have straight paths. Fear the Lord, and you will have health and soundness. So the nexus between condition and consequence is maintained. But there does seem to be a ramping up in terms of intensity. Whereas the son was told to accept or receive the father's teaching in chapter 2, now he's being told to guard it and keep it. Chapter 3 is thus characterized by repetition, amplification, and extension of the same basic principles and patterns encountered in chapter 2, which, of course, is the essence of sound pedagogy. First you say it, then you say it again, then you say it louder, then you press it home. Solomon's being a good teacher here, and a good dad. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. So here again, we see that nexus between condition and consequence, which is really the meat and marrow of wisdom teaching. The father is saying that if the son commits to wisdom and instruction, then he will experience peace and life as a result. Now, Solomon isn't promising his son that he will never get cancer or never have to march off to war. He is stating a general principle. It is generally true that if you walk in the way of faith, obedience, and godly wisdom, then you will live a longer and happier life. There are lots of studies that seem to indicate that, and there are plenty of YouTube channels that appear to illustrate that, often by providing videos that 
demonstrate the opposite behavior and its consequences. The point is, wisdom pays you back. Faith pays you back. Obedience pays you back. You will live better, longer, and more peacefully with God, others, and yourself if you walk in the ways of the Lord. That is generally true. And of course, that is ultimately true as well. Because if you walk faithfully in the ways of the Lord, you will receive eternal life and eternal peace as well. Thanks be to God. Verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Let's just pause here for a moment. I'm reading from the ESV, as you've probably noticed. But many of you are, are likely following along in other translations, which is great and very helpful in situations like this. The Hebrew words chesed and emet, translated by the ESV here as steadfast love and faithfulness, are loaded words that don't perfectly align with any English equivalents. Which is why when you compare English translations, there's a little bit of variety. But in this case, the variety is helpful. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, renders verse 3 as do not let kindness and truth leave you. That's accurate as well. Putting those two translations together gets you closer to the sense of the original Hebrew. Chesed means steadfast love that manifests in God's kindness, particularly to his covenant people. Emet means reliable, trustworthy truth rooted in God and revealed in a variety of ways to his people. A wise young person, a wise any age person, should commit themselves to such things and keep such things very close to them. They should memorize verses that illustrate and explicate such things so that they will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Again, we see that connection between condition and consequence. If this, then that. Now, if that kind of connection irritates you, then you've likely been catechized by the culture and not by the wisdom literature of the Bible, because that nexus is the essence of biblical wisdom. According to the Bible, certain paths lead to certain outcomes, and faith, obedience, and wisdom are all about choosing the path that God commands and that God oversees and that God guarantees. And this is it, the Father says, this is the path upon which favor and success may be found. We hear more about that now in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones." Of course, that's a very well-known passage, isn't it? It's, it's one of those passages that's probably hard for you to hear in any translation other than the one you memorized it as a kid. I had a hard time saying it there in the ESV because of, I probably got it memorized in two or three translations or partially memorized over the course of my life in two or three translations. It's a beautiful passage. And again, here we see that basic pattern of condition and consequence or admonition and promise. In verses 5 to 6, the father tells the son, to trust the Lord, and to expect straight paths as a consequence. Then in verses 7 to 8, he tells him to fear the Lord and to expect healing and refreshment as a consequence. This is an example of reinforcing parallelism, as verses 7 to 8 are basically saying the same thing as verses 5 to 6. 
but by using different words and phrases, the basic concept is presented with greater clarity and depth. The essence of this two-beat admonition is to trust in the Lord as opposed to trusting in one's own instinct and understanding. Again, as we see in the Bible, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So a big part of wisdom is learning to distrust yourself, which sounds counterintuitive in our culture, but that's what wisdom is. Wisdom involves becoming naturally suspicious of your own first thoughts and native desires. Wisdom involves saying to yourself, all right, self, I've heard what you think and what you want, but now I want to consult with the word of the Lord. If you learn to do that, then the reward you can expect to receive is straighter paths in life and refreshment. Alan P. Ross says here, when obedient faith is present, the Lord will guide the believer along life's paths in spite of difficulties and hindrances, Close quote. Bruce Walke goes even a step further than Ross. He says here, by turning from his sinful nature, one experiences spiritual, psychological, and physical healing. As a result of sin, humankind is sick, on the road to death, and in need of healing. But by trust in the Lord, which is inseparably connected with turning from their endemic evil, people find healing toward eternal life. In sum, a right relationship with God leads to a state of complete physical and mental well-being, not simply to the absence of illness and disease, close quote. Now, of course, we remember that while all Proverbs are true, they're not always true in an immediate sense. Sometimes the benefits are experienced in an ultimate sense as opposed to an immediate sense. But from the perspective of eternity, such distinctions will likely seem far less significant than they do at present. From the perspective of eternity, nothing Walkie says here is out of bounds or over the top. A right relationship with God does, in fact, lead to total all-encompassing well-being. Now, the timeline may vary person by person and journey by journey, but the outcome is assured. That is literally how the Bible ends. Revelation 21, 1-4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." Closed quote. That mindset of certain, total, ultimate healing and restoration lies behind the sort of pastoral counsel that you're likely to encounter in the Bible. In James 5, uh, 15 to 16, for example, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, issues of timing and chronology are not addressed in that passage. Rather, ultimate truths are simply asserted, and ultimate comforts are held forth to the suffering individual. James says, if you pray in faith, 
with a clean conscience through Christ, then you will be healed, period. Maybe today, maybe in a year, maybe at the resurrection, but one way or the other, brother or sister, it will happen. That's the worldview of faith, and that's the worldview of wisdom. Remember, wisdom is largely about perspective. It's about seeing the whole board and playing the long game. The next set of admonitions comes to us in verses 9 to 10. The Father says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Once again, this admonition is presented in terms of conditions and consequence. If you honor the Lord with your substance, then you will have enough and more beside. People will often ask me if the law of the tithe is still in force for New Testament believers. And that's a difficult question to answer. Technically, I would argue the answer is no. But here we see that tithing was not just a law in the Old Testament. It was also a principle of wisdom. So the law of tithing as an aspect of the Mosaic Covenant has expired because the Mosaic Covenant as a whole has expired, but the principle of tithing preceded the law. See Abraham and Jacob, for example, and is, in a sense, above the law. As a principle of wisdom, it is before, under, and after the law. It has always been true, and it will always be true, proverbially speaking, that if you honor the Lord with your wealth, you will find that you cannot outgive God. He tends to bless those he trusts to distribute wisely and generously. That basic principle will be repeated multiple times over the course of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 11.24, for example, says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. The Apostle Paul endorses and repeats this principle in 2 Corinthians 9.6, quoting from Proverbs 3, 9 to 10, saying, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, close quote. Most of the commentaries that you'll read in that passage understand Paul there as combining and summarizing Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 and Proverbs eleven twenty four. So the principle is picked up and given New Testament apostolic affirmation as a principle as opposed to a law. When Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, we should expect them to exemplify wisdom, faith, and generosity in their giving. The final admonition in this section, which contains the fourth poem about wisdom, is presented in verses 11 to 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Remember, Proverbs 1.7, the motto of the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here, basically, the father is just telling his son not to be a fool. He is saying that difficulties and suffering will surely come in this life, not because God doesn't love us, but because he does. These experiences are intended to refine our character deepen our faith, and prepare us for eternal fellowship and service. Tremper Longman III says helpfully here, God corrects out of love. He does not want his people to continue in life-damaging attitudes and behavior, closed quote.
Hey, Pastor Paul, just before you move on to the second wisdom poem in this chapter, I'd like to dig a little deeper into this idea that God corrects out of love. I think maybe that would have made a lot of sense to our grandparents, but I'm not so sure it makes a ton of sense to people today. Most of us do not, at least in my experience, intuitively connect correction and discipline to love. We don't like correction. We don't enjoy discipline. So when those things happen to us, we tend to think of that as unloving. But in Proverbs, parents are told to love their kids by disciplining them, and God is said to love his children by disciplining them. So how does that work? How is discipline loving? Well, first of all, you're exactly right in spotting this connection between how God loves and how we're supposed to love as parents. Proverbs does say, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. That's Proverbs 13, 24. So according to the Bible, a failure to discipline is like hating your child. Whereas if you love your child, you're going to make the effort to discipline him or her. Right. Now, to be clear, we're not supposed to be smacking our kids with a stick or something. That word rod, I think, causes some confusion. That's not what the Bible is saying here, is it? No, the word rod in Hebrew is often just a metaphor for discipline. So, for example, Job, when he was finding his life situation very difficult, said, let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. That's Job 934. So God obviously was not actually smacking Job with a stick there, but Job did feel as though he was under discipline. So what the Bible is saying here is that we have to discipline our children. We have to establish boundaries for their behavior, and then we have to be strong enough, committed enough, and loving enough to enforce those boundaries. So firm, but not harsh or brutal discipline is being called for here. Is that right? Yeah, and there are lots of Proverbs that are going to speak about tenderness between parents and children, too. We'll get to all of those uh, as we meet them. But the idea here is firm discipline for the good of the child. Alan P. Ross summarizes what Proverbs says about discipline this way. He says, too much lenience and too much harsh discipline are equally problematic. Balance comes when the child has room to grow while learning limits, closed quote. I think that's really good. And according to Proverbs, it's also really loving. People do better in life when they learn to recognize and respect boundaries because this world has boundaries and great harm comes to those who refuse to acknowledge that. So this is loving. It is loving when parents do it and it's loving when our Heavenly Father does it. Thanks be to God. Yes, 100%. Thanks for walking us through that. Let's take a look now at that second wisdom poem, beginning at verse 13. The second poem in this chapter, which is the fifth poem overall in Proverbs, begins in verse 13. It has as its theme the value of wisdom. Verse 13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Most of the commentaries identify verses 13 to 18 as the opening unit in this poem, 
with a specific focus on the value of wisdom to human beings. The value of wisdom to God, or the value that God places on wisdom, will be the theme in the following stanza. Here, the father is commending wisdom to people in general, and to his son in particular. Wisdom is more valuable than silver or gold, he says, which reminds us of Solomon's prayer back in 1 Kings 4. Solomon could have asked God for anything, but he asked for wisdom because he knew that it was the most valuable gift of all, and because he knew that the person who has wisdom will receive everything else he or she desires along with it. Wisdom leads to silver and gold. Wisdom leads to straight paths and good health. Wisdom leads to life abundant and life eternal. Thanks be to God. Verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Here now the poem focuses on the value of wisdom to God. By wisdom, God founded the earth. So to use an English idiom, wisdom is baked into the cake, as it were. That's why the world responds so favorably to it. Deep calls to deep. Wisdom loves and rewards its own. So if God made use of wisdom to make the universe, then think of how advantageous it will be for you to take hold of that same tool to the lesser extent that you're able to do so. That's the main idea being developed here. Now, in verses 21 to 26, having spoken about the value of wisdom to people generally and even to God, the father begins to speak about the benefits of wisdom to his son in particular. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. In these verses, there's a shift from the indicative to the imperative. So in layman's terms, this is where the father switches from explanation to application or from facts to force. This is the push part of the poem. He's saying, I want you to hear me, son. Guard wisdom and discretion. Be careful with anything that can take that away from you. Watch your inputs, because if you put acid in your heart, then it will eat away at the good things your mother and I have deposited in you. We've given you something valuable, something that will set you up and keep you secure. Now, it's your responsibility to protect it. That's the idea here. In verses 27 to 35, there's a shift from personal integrity to relational integrity. In street-level English, the father is saying, keep your doors locked tight, but be a good neighbor. That's the focus now, starting in verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again, tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. 
The transition from security to neighborliness may not seem intuitive to us, but it was apparently to Solomon, and it is to the wisdom literature in general. Proverbs 27.10, for example, says, Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Close quote. So according to that proverb, you are more likely to survive the day of calamity if you've built and maintained good relationships with your neighbors. You need tight local community to survive and thrive in difficult times. The wise person today will remember that. If your family is spread out all over the country and something like COVID hits and the whole world is shut down, you need to know your neighbors. So again, I think this transition makes more sense than it might appear to us at first glance. The father here is telling his son how to build good relationships with his neighbors. Be willing to help out whenever you can. If you have a tool that your neighbor needs to do a job, then lend it. If you hire the neighbor kid to cut your grass, then pay him well and pay him on time. Don't gossip about the neighbors and don't get into silly, useless arguments with them. Do not envy your neighbors and do not get involved with the wicked plots of the local ne'er-do-wells. If you hang out with them, you're likely to earn the disfavor of solid citizens and the wrath of Almighty God. Be wise about that. Interestingly, verse 34 there is cited by the Apostle James in James 4.6. He cites from the LXX, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, rendering it, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament for obvious reasons. First of all, he cites it a lot. And then secondly, he's obviously entirely absorbed and assimilated its basic worldview. Like the wise father in Proverbs, James believes in an ultimately moral and righteous universe. It was created by God, and God remains active and present within it. He is working purposes of redemption and judgment. He is lifting up the humble and the lowly and casting down the arrogant and rebellious. Thanks be to God. Well, that's all the time we have for today. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 